The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, dedicated to helping you experience all the benefits of time outside and stay more comfortable while you're out there. From soft and breathable activewear designed to do it all, to just the right layers perfect for changing weather, to sun-smart clothing that blocks the sun's harmful rays, every L.L. Bean product is made with comfortable time outside in mind. Visit LLBean.com to shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world are spending their free time counting birds, measuring water quality, or monitoring pollinators. They may also be counting asteroids, collecting bugs, measuring air quality, reporting wildlife sightings, or tracking monarch migration. The amazing thing is that these people are not career scientists. They live in the city and in the country. They go backpacking or have picnics in the park. They vary in age and it doesn't matter what their job is. They are community scientists. Community science is the practice of data collection by everyday people. That is, people who aren't scientists. Community scientists volunteer their time to help collect data, analyze results, and solve problems about important issues facing our natural world, and that includes our national parks. Sometimes the best and easiest way to collect data is to involve volunteers. For example, if a park manager needs to know what areas of the park need better protection, they may need to know where rare plants are blooming each year. A mobile app can support volunteer scientists to record when they see those flowers. And if hundreds of people get involved in the project, there will be more data than if the single scientist tried to explore the entire park alone. This can also be a great way for visitors to learn, get excited, and be involved in something important by taking part in real science in the park. By taking part in real science in the park, visitors can learn to appreciate their national parks in new ways. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, we're exploring stories of community science in our national parks. Though most of our largest public lands lie out west, the most biodiverse park in the national park system lies east of the Mississippi. It's home to more than 1,500 species of flowering plants, 200 types of birds, 68 mammals, 67 native fish species, and 82 species of reptiles and amphibians. The gentle mountains found here are actually more than 200 million years old, and the range in altitude from 850 to more than 6,000 feet mimics the habitats available in the U.S. from north to south, providing a diverse environment for plants and animals. Rain falls often, and when paired with high humidity in the summer, excellent growing conditions abound. We're back in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Here's Abigail Trebu. Discover Life in America is a community science nonprofit based in the Smokies. Their mission is to discover, understand, and conserve biological diversity. Discover Life in America manages a project that aims to catalog every species of animal, plant, and fungus living in the park. Sound easy? It's not. 
Scientists estimate that there are between 60 and 80,000 species of organisms in the Great Smoky Mountains. While enormous in scope, the project was founded on a simple idea. If we want to protect the environment, we need to understand it. How many types of living things coexist in the park? How do they interact with each other? The project also wants to investigate how rare or common each species is and what may be threatening them. With such a big park to monitor, there's only one way to cover so much ground in a reasonable amount of time. Community science. When the monitoring began in 1998, there were around 10,000 known species living in the park. Now community scientists have helped researchers raise the number to more than 20,000 recorded species. More than 1,000 of those newly discovered were new to the entire science field, meaning they had never been seen anywhere else. Researchers estimate that there are more than 60,000 species of living organisms at home in the Smokies. So there's a lot more work to do. While the project in the Great Smoky Mountains focuses on observing as many living things as possible, other community science projects focus on one plant or animal. In this southwestern national park, one type of plant grows so slowly that the park conducts a 10-year census to monitor population changes. By the time this cactus is 100 years old, it could be 16 feet tall and producing its first arm. In another 100 years, it could reach 45 feet tall. This is the saguaro cactus of the Sonoran Desert. Saguaro cacti are specially adapted to survive in the dry southwestern desert. The skin of the cactus is covered with a waxy coating that reduces the amount of water lost to the air through transpiration. The sharp spines help defend the plant and its water inside. To access water deep underground, the saguaro sends down a single taproot with the rest of its roots inches away from the surface to collect any rainwater that does fall. The inside of the saguaro acts like a sponge to collect as much water as possible, making it extremely dense and heavy. A single foot of saguaro cactus can weigh more than 90 pounds. Saguaro cacti also act as a source of food for pollinators, like bats, when their white flowers bloom in late spring. Bats will also eat the saguaro fruit, which helps disperse saguaro seeds throughout the desert. Researchers have been studying cacti in Saguaro National Park for a long time. But in 1990, the park developed a new way to learn about how saguaros are doing. The saguaro census would be completed every 10 years, the same year as the U.S. federal census, to track population changes in the tens of thousands of saguaros. In March 2020, the census was suspended due to concerns over the COVID-19 pandemic. Luckily, most of the census was completed prior to suspension, and a small intern crew was able to complete the last few census plots. Over 500 volunteers worked a total of more than 3,500 hours and collected data on more than 23,000 saguaros. In 2010, there were an estimated 1.9 million saguaros in the park, and the 2020 census shows that numbers seem to have increased slightly since then. In 2017, the park founded a second community science project focusing on saguaro flowers and when they bloom. Phenology is the study of plant and animal life cycle events, like when trees start budding leaves or when birds migrate in the spring. Saguaros typically start to flower when they are between 30 and 65 years old. Because saguaros are so tall, community scientists have to get creative with how to view flowers on the top of the cactus's crown. 
Some volunteers create a saguaro selfie stick, where they attach a camera to a long L-shaped pole that they can hold over the top of the cactus to see the flowers on top. In the past four years, scientists have learned that in some years, saguaros produce more flowers than others, and the flowers typically begin to appear on the north and east sides, likely to take advantage of the early season sunlight. Continuing this project will help park researchers understand how saguaros are reacting to the future effects of climate change. In the mountain lakes of Glacier National Park, common loon calls echo across the crystal clear water. A mother loon slowly swims in the middle of the lake, her two-day-old chicks riding on her back. She has bright red eyes and black feathers spotted with white around her neck and on her wings. In just a couple more days, the chicks will be able to swim on their own, though it's likely only one will reach adulthood. Loons and their close relatives evolved more than one million years ago. The oldest loon on record was 35 years old, but on average, loons live around 20 years. They have dense bones and small wings and large webbed feet that help them powerfully swim underwater. This trait comes with a trade-off, making it less easy for them to walk on land. Loons will only walk on land if they are mating, nesting, sick, or injured. They also need a long runway on water in order to take flight. Loons that land in small ponds or parking lots that look like water can leave them stranded. For this reason, loons opt for lakes that are larger than five acres so they have plenty of space. They also favor lower elevations when they're breeding. And in Glacier National Park, any lakes above 5,000 feet are considered unsuitable. Because loons are so specialized to their habitat, they are less capable of adapting. Shoreline development is one of the leading threats to loons today. Hotels, trails, campgrounds, and fishing areas that are built along the shoreline reduces essential loon breeding habitat. Wakes from motorboats can also swamp nests or wash away eggs. Or the sound can cause loons to leave their nest entirely. Non-motorized boats such as canoes and kayaks can also pose a danger because they are more likely to travel closer to shore. When loons are stressed in these situations, they may push their eggs off the nest or quickly fly away, leaving their eggs vulnerable. But of all the threats, lead poisoning is the leading cause of death among adult loons. When water birds like loons, herons, eagles, and ducks scoop up pebbles from the bottom of the lake to help them digest their food, they inadvertently pick up and swallow lead fishing tackle like sinkers and jig heads or they may eat fish that have ingested the lead tackle. When a loon gets lead poisoning, it is weakened and has trouble feeding, nesting, and caring for its young, and often dies within two or three weeks. Common loons are threatened in Montana. Loons need undisturbed habitat, which means they act as a measure of a healthy lake ecosystem. In the 1980s, management agencies throughout the state created Montana Loon Day, an annual event to count loons around the state. In 1988, Glacier National Park joined and found more than 20% of the state's breeding loon population lived in the park. Yet only around five or six chicks were born and survived each year. Loons don't breed successfully until they're around seven years old, with two eggs hatching per season, and usually only one surviving. 
Park managers were concerned with how long loons would continue to survive in Glacier, and they needed more information than a single day per year could provide. The Crown of the Continent Research Learning Center, CCRLC, promotes science and visitor stewardship within the Crown of the Continent ecosystem, which encompasses Glacier National Park. The center also coordinates the Glacier National Park Citizen Science Program, which began in 2005. The Common Loon Project was created at the same time to better understand the loon populations in Glacier. All community scientists must complete an all-day training session to learn how to identify species and survey the park successfully. After the training, the project asks each volunteer to complete three one-hour surveys in Glacier's backcountry during the field season. In total, they explore 45 different lakes. More volunteers means more observations and a more accurate picture of loon populations, breeding pairs, and chick survival. Loons are ranked as a species with great conservation need in Montana, but there's evidence that they are able to adapt to human activities if they're given adequate breeding habitat and protection during breeding. This tells us that properly designed conservation efforts do work and are worth the effort. The information that volunteers collect helps park management learn how it can better protect the loon populations. Since 2005, community scientists in Glacier have completed more than 2,400 surveys over the course of more than 40,000 hours. Here are some citizen science testimonials. It gives a purpose. You know, I love to wander the park. I love to, to see what's there to examine things. The educational opportunities to be able to learn were a really important part about this. Then going out and putting it into action. That's what really gets exciting when you go out and observe these animals and see what's going on. Being able to give back to the park, it gives a purpose to my hiking. It's not just going out there and having fun. There's a responsibility with doing the best job I can, giving that information back to the park so that it's a useful amount of data that can be used for management decisions later on. Uh, it's part of giving back to this wonderful place. The loons are just really interesting just to observe. And like today, we saw the little babies try to fly. And it's a beautiful park, just as Lots of fun to hike to all the lakes. <laughs> I like being outdoors, and each time I go out, I learn something new. There aren't enough um, park employees to gather all the data or enough time. Citizen science volunteers collect a lot of data about how the wildlife is doing, how they're interacting with the people that come to the park. It's not work. <laughs> you can do it at your own time, and if you like to go out and hike anyway, it's a good way to give back to the park. Coordinating community science projects throughout the pandemic has been challenging. Glacier National Park was closed during early spring and summer of 2020, but volunteers continued to contribute to local science through a project tracking huckleberry growth outside of the park boundary. Participants were limited to current staff and volunteers who'd been trained before. The project focused efforts on the common loon and high country projects where scientists counted loons, mountain goats, and bighorn sheep in the park. There were also youth crews from the Montana Conservation Corps that conducted mountain goat and loon surveys as part of their conservation service program. Despite having a much smaller project crew size, the volunteer force of 2020 was able to reach every designated goat and loon field site in the park. 
interested in becoming a community scientist? There are tons of ways to get involved, and not just in our national parks. eBird is an international community science project that gathers bird observations globally, with more than 100 million bird sightings contributed annually using the free app. It's one of the largest biodiversity-related science projects in the world. You could join the Globe at Night project to measure light pollution where you live, or your local organizations may have pollinator or stream monitoring efforts. One thing is certain. No matter what your background is or where your interests lie, there's a project out there for everyone. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu, and written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found in the description for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>